Welcome back. I'm Marius Masilar, and I'm happy to be bringing you a brand new Trek Sounds interview. Feels like it's been a little while. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a game audio legend, a man whose credits read like a best of list of industry classics. Mist 3 and 4, Jade Empire, Mass Effect, and most recently, Call of Duty Black Ops 2. I'm honored to welcome Jack Wall to the Soundcast. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing great, Marius. Uh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Now, you've shipped so many titles at this point. What's it like when release day rolls around for a new project? You know, it, it, it's just fun, especially with uh, Black Ops 2 is, is fun because I know so many people play it. And it's, you know, will it break all the records, you know, from the last release and things like that? You know, it's kind of exciting. A lot of, a lot of people are uh, just really excited about it. So that, that's, that gets very, it's very contagious, you know. I, uh, we spent a lot of time, I know the team at Treyarch, um, they're a bunch of really great people and, and they work really hard and they know that they have to try to better themselves every time. So it was just a really fun uh, production kind of, you know, sequence of events for the last year that we've been working so hard on this game together. Right. And uh, so, yeah, for that reason, it's really exciting when, when it gets released. I don't think that ever goes away. <laughs> And do you typically follow reviews? Because I know some some composers don't like to you know read too much commentary. But are you on the opposite side? Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of like um, you know, I I I want sort of it all to settle. There's a period of time that goes by after the game gets released where things have to sort of settle. You know, people there's so many people who are want to be first to review the game and all that kind of stuff. I, I have cursorily looked at you know Metacritic and. Um, sort of the uh, review of reviews kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be doing really well, which I'm, I'm pleased about because, uh, you know, it seemed like what we were making was really cool. So I'm glad that people are enjoying it. But you usually trust the later reviews. Uh, you know, I just wait and then just get a, I think I, get a, you know, I, yeah, I don't sit there at the computer and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and wait for them to show you know, up. Next yeah. review after I read the last one. Yeah. I, 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 I tend to, you know, to wait because it, it's you know i want people to spend a little more time with it than you know the day of the re- you know yeah release, of course you know? <laughs> <laughs> they open the box and they're already writing a review but um as uh, some friends of mine in the industry have told me you know a lot of people have had this game for you know several weeks so uh, i you know i'm just happy that the reviews are good so far you know fingers crossed well it's a huge franchise so i don't think there's going to be any shortage of feedback coming in no, no. And people aren't shy. And the haters aren't shy. And the fanboys aren't shy. So it's all good. Exactly. Now, you actually began your career outside of game audio. So I'm interested to know how you actually made the transition into game scoring. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, I, I started out many years ago as, a, as an audio engineer, recording engineer, mix engineer, uh, working in the record business. Um, you know, I started probably in 1988 was my first year doing it. Um, so that's, that's quite a while at this point. Um, I learned to, to be an engineer, uh, back then. And then I started, I, you know, I started my, my audio career in Boston working with local acts there. Um, and, uh, within three months working at Synchro Sound Studios on Newbury street, I'm not even sure if it's still there, frankly. But uh, it's right down the street from Berkeley. So, you know, we had a lot of Berkeley people come and record there, yeah. you know, most for the bands and things like that. And within like three months, I was sort of 
helping to manage the studio, the day-to-day running of it. And uh, I would book, take the phone calls. And, you know, if I was available or if nobody else was available, I would just book myself in a gig and I'd be their engineer. So that was kind of fun. Um, learned how to engineer just by doing it. And um, uh, lots of bands. And then one day, uh, this guy no one had ever heard of, uh, on TVT records, uh, Trent Reznor came in with flood huh. and they were working on, uh, uh, the very first, uh, nine inch nails album, pretty hate machine. Wow. And I was there for the birth of uh, terrible lie and head like a hole. They were like the two hits from that first album. So, uh, that was really kind of enlightening, you know, and many people would come through there and, and, and it was really a great place to start. And, I, and then after that, I moved to New York city uh, followed a friend who had moved there before. We roommate uh, Doug DeAngelis, still a good friend of mine. He he's uh, uh, he's also a composer now, and and you know we uh, we worked at places like Skyline Recording, Platinum Island, Right Track, and Hit Factory, and Sony Music, and all these places in New York City. Um, I I hooked up with John Cale, uh, who then uh, hooked me up with uh, you know we're, we worked together with uh, Patty Smith and and David Byrne, and we you know. We did film soundtracks. We did uh, ballets. We produced, uh, you know, the Maids of Gravity, uh, a band out of Chicago. Um, so pretty huge variety of different genres and, and things coming through. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did all this this kind of really cool record work, and then you know I, I started to produce my own, you know, people that I wanted to produce, and I and I realized after a time that, you know, geez, I, why am I not writing? You know, I love music. I've always been a musician and all these other people are writing and I'm sort of, ta- you know, messing with their, their creations. Why not start to, to create on my own? And, uh, I got an opportunity with a, a company, a game company in, um, San Francisco who was looking for s- some, some people to, to write the music for their titles. So, uh, it was actually, uh, my wife, Cindy, uh, she was a game designer during the day and, and she was a, uh, sort of a, uh, she had a band at night, you know, and, and, and she had a deal with Capitol Records. She was quite the uh, uh, part of the technorati, really. She, she was, you know, hobnobbing with like Peter Gabriel and talking to him about what he wanted to do next. And she, she had all these kind of inside tracks to, to, she was in Wired Magazine and things like that. So, but she had this band on Capitol Records and I was brought in to sort of record their demos for, for them. And, uh, she was, I just found her to be fascinating because she was all into games. So I, I hadn't played games since I was a kid, you know? Right. So she got me back into that. And then, she, you know, we, we got together, she's now my wife and, uh, you know, she, she hooked us up with our first gigs as composers, uh, in this business. And she went off to do other things and, and she's writing operas and things like that now, you know, very serious art work. <laughs> and I'm still, I'm still doing games, which I really enjoy. So, um, We've got an interesting household. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like quite an eclectic group. Yeah, but you so you came through the producing angle, essentially. That's that's an interesting path. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because most composers that I've spoken to, they all seem to you know arrive at game audio kind of sideways. It's it's very rare that they you know set out you know doing okay. I'm I'm going to become a game composer. It sort of just happens. So I always like to find out just how in each case. Yeah, that, that's got to be changing because I get requests almost daily for, you know, how, how do I get into the game music business? You know, how do I, how do I, I want to write for games. And of course. When I was doing it, it was just this weird thing to do. You know, when I started, it was just, you, you write music for game. I mean, people were literally like, 
you making those bleeps and bloops happen? You know, what's, what's up with that? But we, you know, when I started, it was, it was the very beginning. It was 1996. I started. So it was, it was kind of the, near the beginning of being able to put, you know, fully rendered music files in a game. So, uh, you know, PlayStation two and all that. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I didn't want to do the bleeps and bloops either. So, uh, I came so right. So you in. got in right at the right point in time. Um, because you've sort of had this opportunity to be on both sides, you know, at the tail end of that era and seeing where game audio is now, um, how has your workflow kind of changed in terms of preparing music for a game from then to now? I think basically ever since I got into game audio, it's been sort of a, uh, wow, this is really beat backwards. I mean, you know, there was no standards when I started. Um, People were just sort of inventing it as they went along. And so it's been this very long period, 17 years I've been doing this. So it's been this really long period of trying to get back to square one for me. (laughs) Working at Abbey Road was like what I was used to back when I was a record producer. And and the weird thing is that right about the time I got out of that, um, all the studios were closing, right? Because the record business was changing and it was beginning their transition to being, uh, you know, Napster phenomenon happened and oh, right, yeah. business just tanked, right? I mean, all the major studios I worked in, almost all of them when I was in New York City and Manhattan are gone, you know, yeah. um, sold off for parts, you know. And uh, so, so, you know, we're finally, I'm finally getting back to, you know, over the last five years or so, I've gotten back to to the production uh, quality that I, I started out with in the 80s. You know, it's kind of funny. Yeah, you've come full circle without really necessarily noticing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, working at Abbey Road was was really fun for me because I felt like I was back home and, and doing what I've always done or always wanted to do, get back to doing. Now, when it comes to Black Ops 2, what was it about the game or about the project that initially attracted you to it? I mean, you 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 know, your credits tend to favor games that are very, very heavily story-based, so people might not expect you to go for a shooter um, necessarily. So, you know, how did that come about? Well, that's interesting you say that um, because uh, the, the way that I, I, you know, the opportunity came along is that Brian Tui, the audio director at Treyarch, he and I worked together 10 years ago uh, he was at a small developer and I was working for that developer and, and we, we did two or three games together. And um, I guess he was, uh, he and some of his buddies at Treyarch uh, last year were playing Mass Effect 2 really, really loved the game, really loved the score. And he had no idea I did it. And, you know, he was finished the game, the credits were rolling and he saw, he saw it was me. And he, yeah. so he was like, Oh my God, it's Jack. <laughs> so, uh, he gave me a call and he said, uh, man, we love the score here. And, and would you be interested maybe in, in, in working on black ops two and auditioning for it? I'm like, hell yeah, absolutely. Cause you know, cause for me, uh, you know, it's, you're right. It's something I hadn't done before. And to have that opportunity to do something I hadn't done was really exciting, you know, and a creative challenge I'd imagine. Yeah. It, it, very challenging. Um, because uh, you know, again, you don't think of story when you think of, of, of a shooter like Black Ops 2. Um, so I did the audition. I won the audition. I got the call, jumped up and down 50 times. Uh, they invited me in for a first meeting with, you know, all the executives at Treyarch. And, and yeah. so I was talking to the executive producer, Jason Blundell, and the, the writer-director, Dave Anthony, and the president, Mark 
bulimia. So we all sit down and at different times during during a long day of, of introductions, right? And and I said to Jason Blundell, who's the first guy that really spent a little time with me to tell, talk about, you know, the single player campaign and what they're envisioning for it, you know. And the thing that he's, I said to him, why did why why me, you know? <laughs> Why get, you know, the role-playing, you know, role-playing game guy, you know, yeah. story-based, you know, music guy to do this. And he said, well, first of all, your audition was something that we knew that you weren't trying to do what you thought we wanted you to do. You were trying to, you were, you thought outside the box about it. And that's what we want. We, we feel like, you know, Hey, this is the ninth call of duty game. Um, if we don't freshen, you know, this, we don't take the initiative to, to freshen this up. We're going to start to lose interest. You know, people start to lose interest in what we're doing. So um, for the single player campaign on this one out, we're, we're really interested in, in the story. We want our characters to have themes. We want the music to help us tell the story of, of what we're trying to do in the shooter. So, um, you know, Black Ops was a pretty cool game that way too. I mean, there was story, but they found uh, they they discovered after the fact through focus testing and whatever that um, the characters weren't memorable for some reason. Okay, really wanted to fix that in Black Ops too, and so to that end, they hired David Goyer uh, from the from, from the get go to uh, consult on the story with Dave Anthony and make sure. The, the characters were compelling, that they were, they had some depth, you know. And that we care about them. That we care about the characters, exactly. And um, so I was very excited when I heard that because it, it's quite frankly, as a composer, I find it really difficult to just write a ton of action music, you know, without any hook to it. And, you know, on this one, I didn't. I found a lot of hooks into the themes I was writing for the characters. And, uh, and so for me, that went pretty smoothly it was it felt very natural um and definitely i was in my comfort zone with it that's actually one of the things i wanted to mention that you know listening to the score i noticed that there's really quite a tremendous dynamic range between the cues i mean it's it typically you might expect a whole lot of action and not a whole lot of anything else but here there's you know quite a number of sensitive cues more ambient cues um i'm just was that mostly what you pushed for or was that something that the entire team was was kind of gunning for from the beginning well i i went back to listen to what they had done on black ops and and one of the things that um uh, the composer sean murray had done with brian too is they had um they had a lot of darkness to a lot of the cues And, and i wanted to kind of retain some of that because it was a bit of a signature for the Black Ops branch of Call of Duty. It yeah. felt right to me. So, um, you know, another thing I really liked about that score was guitars in it, and so we put some of those back. I, I felt that they really drove the gameplay really nicely. But that's more of an action element, right? That, that was what was cool. It felt cool to play that. Um, for this one, uh, yeah, they, I had a lot of support um, from them with my ideas. I came up with a lot of ideas, and they seemed to just like all my ideas thankfully um that's always nice yeah i mean uh one of the most important ideas that came up with i think in retrospect was the nino precioso idea um and that was based on and and you you probably when you heard that you probably thought uh well this is different 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's obviously it, it stands out, but it, it it's one of those things where I figured, okay, this there must be an interesting context in the game for a cue like this. Yeah, and and it was literally the first cue I wrote, and um, and Dave Anthony loved it. You know, the flamenco guitar, the the vocal. You know, it was just me singing and me playing. But um, uh, what happened was uh, I read the script. And, you know, I, I spent some time on the story, really trying to understand the hooks of the story. And to me, you know, for me, the, the most important character in the game is not David Mason, the guy that you play, or Alex Mason, his dad. It, it, the, the most important character in the game by far is Raul Menendez, you know, because he's such a he's such a bad guy. He's a great villain, you know, and, and he was crafted by David Gore, the same guy you know, who created the, you know, the Joker in, in the Dark Knight. And yeah. Batman Begins and all that. He created those characters. So um, Dave Anthony, was it was important to him, this, this character. And I came back uh, for a first story meeting and I said, he's the guy for me. And they were all like, okay, cool. That's cool. Because they were all thinking, of course, because the players are all playing David Mason, that he's the most important. I'm like, no, that... That's you. You're you're just your experience of playing the game is what's important. Right. You know, yeah. His character is much less important than than Realm Menendez's character. Um, so there was a scene, a really pivotal scene, that sort of um, drives the motivations for Realm Menendez's character, and that's that you know when he's young, he's uh, he's in this uh, he's in this situation where uh, his sister gets hurt. And, you know, his family is actually really important. And this is what I loved about the story. There was, he's, he's more than a two-dimensional bad guy. He's a one-dimensional bad guy. He's, he's got motivation for why he's a bad guy. So that, that really kind of helps the story along quite a bit, I think. And so Nino Precioso is Precious Child. It's a Nicaraguan lullaby. It's actually a public domain piece of music that I found because um, Raul Menendez is Nicaraguan. And when he was young, he had to take care of his sister. And I, I just imagined him... Sit, you know, she's sick on the bed and he's sitting there with his guitar and he's singing to her. Like to, a lullaby. To comfort her. Yeah, it's a lullaby. So uh, I kind of repurposed, re, rejiggered, refi- reconfigured that lullaby to, to conform to what I wanted to do in the broad score. I rewrote some of the lyrics to, to, to make it, um, you know, more pertain more to the story. And... Um, and I mocked it up for Dave and Dave and Jason and, and Mark, everybody seemed to really like it. And so much so that, um, you know, Dave and I got lucky because the guy that he cast to, uh, to play Raul Menendez, uh, Camar de los Reyes, a great, great actor, um, really awesome performance he did in the, in the game. Uh, he, he lived down the street from me and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's convenient. The week after he was cast and, uh, and he sang that song, and that's actually him singing. Wow! So that worked out really well. Yeah, it worked out better than than Dave and I thought it would. And and Dave then went on to change some of the scenes that they had uh, written for the game to include that piece of music and to include you know that even as background and as um, also as. Uh, a part of what was actually going on to really showcase the fact that this guy cares a lot about his sister. And so, you know, I printed the lyrics on the, on the soundtrack and the digital soundtrack uh, booklet. And, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a centerpiece. And then at the end, um, 
not to spend too much time on this one, but it is fairly important to the score. At, at the end, right right before, I think it was two days before we left for our second trip to London to, to record the, you know, the, the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just had this idea that for the credit roll, I'm not even going to tell anybody I'm doing this. I'm just going to write a, an orchestral version of it. And uh, I quickly did it in a day, uh, sent it off to my orchestrator. He flushed it out for me. And then we went on a plane and we... Uh, we were recording the rest of the score and we got to that one and uh i knew i knew i had done something cool because the the whole orchestra applauded after they played it the first time so because it's a real piece of music it's like a song it's like a real like a 1970s kind of michelle legrand you know summer 42 kind of style of writing yeah it actually that was one of the things that i uh, was really impressed by is just how well that song had translated into an orchestral format. It just it felt very authentic and very, um, like you said, very musical. Just just great to listen to. Yeah, I was I was really excited about that. And then I came home and, and after the fact, uh, recorded some other instruments on top, some harp, and and then uh, I got this guy. I found this guy Rudy Cardenas to come in and sing, and he just got an amazing voice. You know, he he just nailed it. He's from Venezuela and just. He loved doing it, and he just—I was so pleased with that. Now, I'm—you know—it's—it sounds like you've had um, a fairly clean slate going in in terms of of how to approach the score, and and you managed to differentiate it very clearly from other games that have come before you in this franchise. But one of the things that interested me the most was to know if there was any attention paid to. Um, creating some sort of distinguishing voice for the Call of Duty franchise as compared to its competitors like um, Medal of Honor or Battlefield? Well, there's, there's, there's no problem with any of that, those, because I never played any of those games and I never heard any of that music. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, I, I wasn't that interested in trying to do what, you know, other types of shooters in this genre were doing. I, I was more interested just to see what, you know, how I was moved by it and what I was going to do with it. I mean, I, I had listened to many other Call of Duty games. Uh, those were ones I played and, and uh, enjoyed. So uh, that worked out. And I, and I do know that the early Medal of Honor stuff, with Michael Giacchino, that stuff was amazing. Um, and he And he had a great voice in terms of, melody he was you know michael's all about melody which i think is why he's such a successful composer today in film and um, i was interested in in melody as well and and i wanted to uh, i'm always interested in that and exploring that and trying to because it's tough sometimes you know putting melody in a video game it it, it sort of calls almost too much attention to itself so you have to be a little bit tricky about how you do that yeah, that's actually that's something I wanted to ask you about is is where you stand on the on the whole notion of of melodic themes because I know some composers seem to be going towards the idea that they're feeling a little too quaint or a little inappropriate and I you know I always I always feel like maybe it's more to do with the way that they're used but do do you feel that there's actually an incompatibility between thematic writing and certain genres of video game? Um there can be, but at the same time, I don't think it should be ignored. Um, I think you have to find your moment. I think, the, you know, there, there's always going to be a an emotional high somewhere, and that's where the melody needs to to really sing out. And and that's that's sometimes really hard to find, you know. Um, 
So, I, you know, I think we were able to find a few different moments in Call of Duty. I think it's, you know, these shooters, the big shooters are, are probably the tougher ones to to try to find those moments. But you, you got to find them because they're, you know, it's only going to help the experience uh, of the gameplay. And, um, you know, when you get to that sort of emotional high, that's pretty cool. Uh, and, and I think one of them happens at the very end of the game, um, frankly. The hero's theme plays at the very end, uh, right before the credits roll, and and that was an important moment. Um, and a lot of the melodies that I wrote are sort of embedded somewhere in the game that you know um, they, they just sort of mean something to the character. So, um, and you mentioned too that there's a lot of uh, sort of softer moments in the score, and, and that's that's actually. Uh, that's by design as well. We, I really tried to find the appropriate moments to do that. Like when you're you're in this one level in Pakistan, and, and uh, you're actually for a fairly significant and all, it was very uncomfortable for the developers of Treyarch. I can tell you this because they're like, oh my God, we're 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 being too stealthy here. You know, we're not. There's not enough. What is the community going to say about this? But they, to their credit, they said, you know what, we're going to do it. And there's like, I don't know, it's not even that long. It's like six minutes where you're spying on, on Raul Menendez and his people. And, you know, not to give too much away in the story, but, you know, I thought that that is a tremendously cool time to do some really, you know, ambient, um, cool vibey music, you know, dark, but just cool. And, and that's where the anthem anthem comes in um and plays it's like a four minute piece or i don't know oh i see yeah see that makes sense to me because i know that in a lot of cases um especially during the more frantic action sequences it's really hard to focus in on on the music or 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 notice it sometimes not only because you know obviously it's competing with explosions and so on in this in this kind of game but also it's just you're so tense and you're so focused on on the mission that you're completing that it's very difficult to have spare attention to go, oh man, that's a really beautiful guitar lick. That's, you know, that pad is wonderful. Like you just don't, there, there isn't time for that in in a sense. So No, and it's really just to in, enhance the adrenaline. That's all it's there to do. That's the purpose of it. And that's why melody in those particular situations isn't all that important. And, and But, you know, you can find the, you know, people, people tend to, to gravitate musically, they, they gravitate towards melody. You know, if you, if you write a nice melodic piece of music and you put it in the right spot in the soundtrack, it'll be everybody's favorite piece because they're able, like you say, they're actually able to focus on it and they're actually able to hear it and feel it and be emotionally, you know, uh, affected by it. And there's something to take away, I think. I mean, that's, that's some of the difficulty of these um, more ambient scores is that as beautiful as they are and as, as well as they sometimes set the mood, it's very difficult to come out of it with something you know, tangible in your, in your mind that you're able to hum or, or just recall, um, easily once you've left the game. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing with the orchestra too. You know, a a lot of people, some people I think are tired of hearing orchestras and I don't think I'll ever get tired of it because it's not about the fact that we're at Abbey Road with an orchestra. It's about that there's real players playing it. And I don't mind that you don't always notice that, you know, like I, I have pieces in, in, in the soundtrack where I mix the electronics way hotter than the orchestra. And I think still the orchestra cuts through and it does its work, it does its beauty, it does its magic. And, you know, it, it's not a focus of the piece, but 
it's there and it, I feel it and that's all I care about. And, and no one's going to notice that it's an orchestral piece at all because, you know, it's just so electronic uh, with it. And, and, and that's, that's pretty cool too, that, that I had the freedom to do that, you know, because, you know, having the budget and having the, the, the blessing of Treyarch and Activision to go record all these musicians is such a cool, you know, perk really to the score. Yeah, tell us tell us a bit about how that whole recording process went. I mean, it sounds like a very large ensemble. Was it was it one of the larger ones that you've worked with, or how did that all? Pan oh, out? yeah, it's by far the largest uh, orchestra. It was eighty six players. Wow, um, eighty six players, meaning uh, you know sixty you know sixty of them, I think, were um, strings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, it's gigantic. Yeah, and then seventeen brass. I had eight horns and four trumpets and four trombones and two tubas, <laughs> one chimbasso. Yeah, I noticed that on the um, on the the PDF notes, um, actually, that there were two tubas credited. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's that's why the low brass section sounds so meaty. Yeah, and then not to mention the contrabass trombone uh, next to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just had a, a great low brass sound, which I totally love and, and that that'll cut through like butter anything any gunfire you know <laughs> it's like such a great sound yeah it really is and it's actually i think part of the um maybe part of your history as as working you know as a producer and and uh, mixing in these studios uh, the actual mix of everything like the way that the elements are all um coming together in the mix, the clarity of everything is really spectacular. I, I think uh, that's worth mentioning because sometimes it's one of those things that gets lost in uh, discussions about soundtracks. But you know, just the sheer production quality is is impeccable on this score. Oh, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how much that means to me to hear that because um, as we started the conversation, this is the full circle for me. This is returning to the high end audio roots that I started from. I, I worked. I found in uh, my team is just. They're all rock stars. I mean, every single person that touched this audio is uh, is known for doing great things in their own career. So, you know, I had great orchestration with Neil Desby and Ed, Ed Tribeck. They, they work a lot with Bear, my friend Bear McCreary, and, and they do a lot of stuff in Hollywood. Um, and then I had Joel Iwataki as my engineer. He recorded and mixed everything. Um, and then uh, I worked on the soundtrack. Uh, we had it mastered by uh, Patricia Sullivan. I mean, she does, you know, everybody from John Williams to you know, you know, Danny Elfman and all the Newmans. That's a dream team. <laughs> dream team. Absolute dream team. And uh, and then my, my assistant, Alex Hemlock, is, you know, very young guy who um, just, you know, is just an amazing asset to me every single day. Um, he... He did a lot of editing for cinematics, so he he would take, um, you know, we got all the cinematics after I came from Abbey Road. So I, yeah. I had to I had to record a lot of stuff in anticipation of editing that into cinematics later because I wouldn't I wasn't going to be able to see them. Yeah, you weren't scoring to picture. Correct, not for the cinematics. And then Alex was just genius at editing my my music into these cinematics and then we worked together of course he would send them to me i'd be like okay change this change that we went back and forth a number of times but he was just a great member of the team and, and really appreciated by the audio people at treyarch i think um 
and then you know Ross and Audrey De Roche, uh, score supervisor, budget supervisor. These people are so important to, to pulling all this off in the time we have to do it. It's just just really awesome. Well, I just you know they all deserve a, a huge pat on the back because it like the finished product is amazing. It's it's just sonically it's it's beautiful to listen to, and that's something that that like I said, I don't think it gets mentioned enough. Um, so I just you know wanted to make sure those people know that they're appreciated. Yeah, well, I'll make sure they hear this, and they will appreciate it. Believe me, trust me on that, and I certainly do as well. Thanks. Since we're speaking about recording live instruments and all that, um, one other thing that I think maybe sometimes is not spoken about as much is um, the fun that you have with electronics. And there there is some very interesting electronic stuff going on in this score. So I was wondering if you had any uh, particular devices or you know freaky techniques that you made use of that you might want to mention to us. Uh, you know, a, a lot of it is that, you know, when, when I started the project, Alex and I went out with a field recorder and recorded a bunch of stuff. Um, we designed a bunch of sounds that we were, were going to use in the new score. Um, things that I wanted to be completely something that we created ourselves. So, we, you know, we went out and recorded dumpsters, hitting them with different things, and squeaks when you open the lid, and, you know, yeah. banging on fences, pipes, and anything we could find. We just went out for a couple of days and did that. And then, and then we spent a good amount of time designing sounds into I, I like to use um, this, this software called battery um, native instruments battery because yeah. I, I like the fact that it has cells and you can actually see what the hell you're doing so uh, and it's very powerful in terms of the synth capabilities pitch you know pitch envelopes and things like that so we would mix those sounds that we recorded with other synth sounds that um, that I had and and just create these new like a lot of percussion a lot of, of big hits and things like that were just just fantastic um you know because i'm, I'm always disappointed by um you know when when i use other people's sounds that way just not doing exactly what i wanted to do you know, and i'd rather just start fresh yeah and you usually don't have the control that you need to manipulate them into exactly what you want them to do yeah and then you know by the time we're done creating a bank of hits every single hit is just sounds like it's you know from the gods <laughs> yeah. really special and and that i like that too um yeah and then and then you know i like to use a lot of different uh synthesizers and and stuff when i when i program the electronics and it really it's not necessarily about always designing sounds it's about how you combine them uh and and you know how you take up the frequency spectrum with, you know, being an audio engineer, it's all about, you know, not having one sound cancel the other out and things like that. So that, that becomes really important if you want things to cut through, right. You know? Yeah. And like you were saying, you're particularly well equipped to be aware of some of that, um, some of the conflicts that can, you know, arise with phase relationships and all that, that sometimes gets ignored and much to the detriment of the scores overall sound. Exactly. And, and the, the kind of the funny thing about electronics in me is that I started off really, you know, when I did Mist, it was all about single, you know, single instrumentalists and the orchestra, you know, or whatever. Uh, it wasn't really about electronics uh, for me. I, I wasn't known as, as an electronics kind of guy at all. Yeah. And, and then I got the Mass Effect gig after I did Jade Empire. Oh, yeah, suddenly. And, and I was like, why did they hire me? because <laughs> they wanted like they wanted that really kind of 80s sound you know, 
that 80s Tangerine Dream, Vangelis, that kind of stuff. And um, it just took a lot of experimenting. And I, I found it really fun and really tweaky, but like fun to tweak all that stuff and learn synthesis. I had to learn synthesis on, on the first Mass Effect. Uh, there were par- probably many other people far more qualified to do that game, but it was it was just really fun. Well, but you brought a certain level of musical sensitivity to it that they were probably appreciating um, over and above uh, necessarily your your raw technical skills with the synthesizers. But oh yes, of course, that's it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we actually we have a lot of uh, of composers who listen to the podcast, so we're uh, we're able to geek out a little bit more than you might um, you might otherwise be able to. So I'm wondering if you have any um, hardware or or software that you find yourself coming back to over and over again. Are there any particular tools that you are really fond of? Well, you know, I have this real thing where I love to hear sounds pitching down slowly as they tail off, like. You know, a sound that goes, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, I just love that sound. I don't know what it is. And I, I probably like it too much, but it's just the most satisfying thing in the world to hear that to me. Every time I hear anything that does that. So I use pitch envelopes a lot <laughs> because I just love hearing that, um, you know, and I love, I love being able to tweak low end. So it's actually audible and, and, not only audible, but you can actually feel it. So it's really important to like make room for that. Yeah. You know? And I learned years ago when I was doing some ringtones for a project I was working on that you have to get rid of all the energy that no one's going to hear in order to hear something in a ringtone. Right. Especially on, on tinny speakers like that, that are coming out of phone. Right. Like when I was making stuff, there wasn't any MP3. You had to do these crazy squirrely formats to get them on any sort of phone. And you had to like every ringtone that you would have to produce. This is years ago. Every ringtone you'd have to produce had like, there was like eight formats that you had to think about. So it was kind of a, an interesting exercise and, and how to tweak stuff. Um, but it's really about it, a lot of just making room for, for stuff. You know, that that's like, if you can make room for the sounds you actually want to hear, then you'll actually hear those sounds. That's, it sounds really simple, but it's, it's, it's really not. So now clearly I have to go back through your whole catalog and listen for those, uh, those pitchy sounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I, I understand that you didn't actually have um, an opportunity to work too directly with uh, Trent Reznor this time around on the, uh, when it came to the main theme. Um, but I'm interested to know how important that theme ended up being for you in terms of defining the musical direction, I suppose, that you were taking. Uh, you know, it it was never a mandate from Triarch that we worked together. And so we didn't, it was, and I think Trent being as busy as he is, uh, with all his film scores this year, and, uh, he just wrote a piece of music. Um, they, they directed, uh, you know, Brian and and company, uh, Triarch directed him on what they wanted the piece to, to be used for. And so Trent was writing kind of almost a picture, I believe, uh, you know, again, I never spoke to Trent about any of this. We did we never spoke once. Um, the last time I saw him was probably, uh, you know, 1990 when I was <laughs> in the studio. I don't even know if he remembers who I am. You'd um, probably be surprised to learn that that was me in there. Um, if you remember me at all, but, um, yeah, we didn't, we didn't work together on this. And, uh, but I think what he did was really cool. 
I will say that um, on this one, I know it was really important to Treyarch to try to uh, create some new experiences in, in, in both the single player campaign with the Strike Force missions and 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 the storyline with David Goyer and Dave Anthony working together. And then, you know, also, um, I, I know that they, they updated some of the functionality in the multiplayer, which is a huge part of the game, um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, that, I think that's probably one of those things that what isn't broken, let's not fix those things. Yeah, and that's a fair point. And it, it sounds, from what you're telling me, like they did actually put um, a, a more emphasis on on doing some, some things differently this time around, which, uh, you know, makes me eager to play. I've always enjoyed the series. I've just... You know, I always like to see when uh, when game developers take risks and and uh, right. you know even if it doesn't always work out, I just I get excited by them pushing boundaries and you know doing things that are off the wall or unusual or or brave in some sense. Well, I think um, Jason Blundell, the, the executive producer, said to me early on. He said, uh, "You know, we're in a unique position because we're a studio that's been around for a long time. This is the first time we can actually really try to make the game we want to make." You know, I mean, there's a lot of pressure at the developer level to to succeed. And of course, you know, with Black Ops, they they were really successful. They 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 were stunned by the success they had, and I think that enabled them with Black Ops Two to take some risks and to try to do things a little bit more like they've always wanted to do it as game developers, as as you know, quite frankly, as artists. These guys are artists, all of them. They really are, yeah. They love games and they love what they do, and and for them. You know, they wanted to sort of reboot the series a little bit. You know, they knew it needed, and innately, everybody knows it's it's due for a you know a facelift. You know, even even though it still keep, continues to sell very well, it's like, well, we can't rest on our laurels, man. We gotta. That's just it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you, you want to avoid the sense of stagnation. Exactly, and and to their credit, um, they know this. And, and I think the people out there who play this game should know it too, because you know this is where the critics come way in, and they see they see fresh meat when they look at how successful it is, and they want to just kill it. You know? But um, success sometimes breeds contempt, as it were. Right, and I think for some of them too, it's just it's force of habit at this point. I think they're, that's just sort of the easy target way of criticizing a Call of Duty game, even if the criticism is no longer valid. It's just you know that's the the knee-jerk reaction, oh, another Call of Duty game, which is not fair. Right. I had one guy tweet to me that uh, I'm an idiot for using dubstep in, in the score. He hates dubstep. And I wrote him back, and I said, what are you talking about? I, I think it was about 20 seconds of a two-and-a-half-hour score that I had a, a wad bass in it, and, and he he kind of lost his mind. It was just funny. You know? just, uh, what can I say? Sounds like a very informed opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, since we're, since we're talking a little more broadly about, um, about games and you've actually been in a position to watch the gaming industry as a whole evolve throughout a lot of its modern lifespan, uh, I wonder besides the kind of obvious film inspiration, what sorts of trends have you become aware of that you're interested in or maybe concerned about? I think we're coming out of the fledgling period. That's how it feels to me. Um, and one of the reasons I say that is because a lot of the publishers have stopped making every game idea they come up, you know, that comes across their desk. They, they only do the ones they, they think are going to be successful. So um, there's going to be um, a very vibrant indie community in the, in the coming 
leaders, I, I feel. Uh, especially with social gaming, um, you know, just indie games are where the real innovation in games is taking place. That, that's where the real stuff happens. Yeah, it seems that way. Based on what happens there, you know, the, the publishers will cherry pick the ideas that seem to be working and they'll make those games. And this is not unlike every other entertainment business that's ever been. You know, you think about the film industry, it's the same thing there. Um, the big films uh, very often come from, you know, uh, small filmmakers who, who come up with a great idea uh, on their own and it, it becomes uh, the next big film or whatever. Um, and then there's comic books and, and, and of course, video games get made into movies now. But um, I th- so that's the reason I think that the game industry is past its fledgling uh, period and, and it's... It's sort of getting into a groove with, you know, being a business, like a real business. That yeah, it's, it's matured. It's matured a bit. Um, it's not fully mature by any means, but it definitely feels different these days to me. It feels like people are much, and I know this because being a composer, uh, you know, a long time ago, all I had to do was raise my hand and say, yeah, I can play a guitar and I can write music for a game. Today, that's not that's not really possible. It's uh, you, you know, I I have to audition for every single game I do, and that means that you know every aspect of game production and development is taken very seriously. Because you know, if they're doing it with me, they're doing it with every other, you know, every artist, every game designer, every every other aspect and every other discipline that it takes to make a game. And it is a good sign, I think, you know, if, if someone even of your pedigree has to audition um, for, for games, that means that obviously the standards are quite high um, and that they are concerned about quality, which is, you know, very good to hear about. I, I think some people have a, a worry that the big publishers are not necessarily making decisions based on um, talent or skill so much as marketing value. And that's always, you know, I, I always wonder from people who have seen it from the other side how true that is. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, it, it, it's not frustrating for developers. I think that, you know, publishers being very, you know, wallet-driven, you know, budget-driven, all that kind of stuff, I think the budgets are bigger for the bigger games, but to get to that point, there's fewer games being made, so there's less opportunities to make a really good game, for, for example. Yeah. So that 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 makes it a little less about innovation and, and more about economics. And that's, that's always looked at artistically as a bad thing. But then you get the indie gamers and the people who are indie developers who are making just, you know, Super Meat Boy, for example. Yeah, and, and taking those risks. Yeah, and they're taking the risks and, and making games on a shoestring, which is kind of still pretty exciting. You know, I, I know composers who are like, doing deals with trying to make a good indie game. There's no budget for music. So that instead they'll take like a piece of the back end and some of them are making some serious money uh, because they happen to be tied to a game that is doing really well. And, and, the, um, and there's just these really innovative ways of distributing indie games that I think are quite fascinating, really. Yeah, well, it's I'm I'm glad to hear that you think there's sufficient communication between that level, like the indie level and the big publishers, that there's enough inspiration going both ways. Well, um, I I don't think I don't think there's enough. Oh, not enough. Okay, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Because see, that's why that's why I was asking really, because sometimes it feels like the these indie people are are pioneering all these fantastic ideas, 
but the publishers aren't necessarily you know the large scale um, game industry is not necessarily taking notice or or taking notice quickly enough. Yeah, well, I'm not really totally in that world. Uh, I'm just kind of noticing from my own little perch uh, that, that that this is this seems very familiar to me. You know, from my experience in the record business, from my experience in in, in the film business and, and all that. You know, people who make the indie stuff and hit end up having a hit are like the next big darling of the the majors. Right. So in in that sense, it it does happen. It's, it's an economic necessity. Um, But uh, I look at it as a healthy thing. I'm not very critical of that process because I, I feel like, um, you know, there's still, there's still a pathway for somebody who's unknown to, to create something really interesting and get noticed. You know, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I guess as long as that's true, things are going well. Yeah, yeah, relatively speaking. I, there's going to be people who disagree with that statement. but um, Just sort of to bring things back down to you, you mentioned that you've, um, that you've wrapped up Lost Planet 3. Are you able to speak uh, about that at all yet, or is that still all very much under wraps? Uh, I really don't know what I can say. Give it a shot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, I mostly just wanted to, uh, to broadly ask you how that project had, had come um, together and and again, that's one of those things where it's not the kind of title I would expect you to be attached to. So, well, if you think about Mass Effect and Lost Planet, you're not too far away from each other. Um, yeah, that's true. We we did a very different musical design on this one. Um, it, it feels a little bit, uh, you know, we, we the 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 way the developers wanted to uh, to do this one, which was was kind of a shock to me at first, but half the score is country music. Country music. Wow. Okay. Alien twang, I call it. Cause it's all set in the future, right? Yeah. And the main character, Jim Peyton is a big country kind of rockabilly, you know, Americana kind of music fan yeah. and blues, you know, that kind of stuff. So I made, I basically made an album for this game. It's about an hour of music that's going to be probably released at some point as an album. And it's all songs with, uh, with no lyrics um, because the lyrics just didn't work in the game. But, you know, he's got his, uh, his iPod, so to speak. I'll, I won't say more than that, but he's got sort of like, you know, in his rig, he's got this iPod, if you will. Yeah. Uh, type of contraption that plays music while he's doing his thing. And that was super fun. To, to do because I got to work with great drummers and great percussionists and great bass players. And I played, I played guitar like with the band. In the <laughs> so you had a lot of fun with it. It sounds like it really was uh, something different. And it was effortless to make this music. It was so effortless because it, you know, this is where, this is where I live. You know, I was, I was actually in the studio recording with the band. You know, it was awesome just awesome and it, and it, and the stuff came out great and have Can't you wait. seen it have you seen it in uh, in context because that's like i'd be now i'm very curious to see the game and, and to see how that kind of score would fit in um with the gameplay you know ironically i haven't <laughs> <laughs> i've just i've seen a little bit of it um in context and it, it seemed to work really well and from what I, from what the, you know, the developers tell me it's working really really well and people really dig it um and then, of course, the rest of the score is is sort of like 
orchestral electronic as well. It's it's a bit raw sounding, um, even though it's set in the future. I, there's a lot of uh, you know it's been released. I, I'm just telling stuff that's already been released in public. But you know, there's these creatures on this planet Eden Three. They're called Acrid. Right. And the Acrid are like giant crabs and you know big giant scorpions and spiders and all kinds of and big giant like fireflies dragonflies that kind of stuff so you know it's just got this sort of like clash of the titans feel to it you know um not that i use that score as a as a reference but it, i just felt like the old i remember the old clash of the titans but made back in the 60s or whatever oh yeah yeah that had a certain feel to it that just felt really nasty and raw and uh, at least the look of it. And so that was kind of my inspiration for the, the, the score part. So um, yeah, it came out, it came out pretty cool. Well, I look, I look forward to it. I've, I've actually always been a fan of the, uh, of the series. I know that critics didn't necessarily receive the, the first two games very well, but I always had fun with them because they were sort of like a, a starship troopers, yeah, type of experience and and just you know just fun really. Um, well, I, I, I tried to play Lost Planet two, and I I was just stunned at how unplayable it was. Like I couldn't even figure out how to play it. Yeah, you I know? mean the controls were were not helping you in any sense. But right, well, it was, the game was designed in Japan, and I think there was a something lost in in the cultural translation there, um, it, which goes to the fact that they. Uh, to their credit, Capcom said, you know, this is really a game that should be designed and built in, 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 in a Western country. So, you know, they have a Western developer at Spark Unlimited, um, which turns out they're right down the street from my house. So um, It seems to happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I ride my bike over there for, for review stuff. So it's been really fun that way, too. Um, and, you know, those guys are, I think they're doing a good job with it. And the, the cinematics that I, I just finished uh, working on are the acting is fantastic. The story is great. I'm just really pleased with this whole thing. You know, this game is going to be, you know, nobody's expecting much from it, which I think is awesome. You know, it's, it's going to be one of those ones that hits and people are like, wow, this is a really good game. Well, pleasant surprises are always welcome. You know, it's, it's the worst thing when there's a lot of hype and the game doesn't live up to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so just to, to wrap up, um, are there any, I guess, game scores in your recent memory that have really stood out to you as being very musically satisfying or ambitious or notable in some way? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Jesper Kidd. I think uh, he's a one of the more innovative composers out there. Um, he takes chances every day. I really appreciate that. I like Gary Scheiman's work because I think he's a real purist in terms of the orchestra. He knows how to use the orchestra really well with, uh, you know, his his work with uh, uh, Destroy All Humans and, you yeah. know, Bioshock stuff is fantastic. He really created a great movie with those scores. And, uh, um, you know, Rod Abernethy, uh, I think, is just an incredible composer. Um, a lot, a lot of respect for him and Jason Graves as well with Dead Space. Uh, he does some really interesting stuff with that stuff. So, yeah, Gerard Marino. I mean, I'm friends with all these guys. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll tell you what, I haven't played Halo 4 yet, but I know I'm just going to miss Marty O'Donnell's work on that and Mike Salvatore, those guys. Yeah. You know, the Halo sound, why anybody would, uh, 
you know, he's, I understand why, but it's just like, you know, somebody should at least mimic that sound. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's such an integral part of this, of the, uh, yeah. franchise. It's just, it's great. Yeah. That's another one on my list of, of, you know, two plays. So I think I'm going to have the same reaction that you just described. Yeah. Yeah. I think December is going to be my month to just like hole up and play a bunch of these games, Yeah, uh, which I haven't had time to do yet. <laughs> Well, I think you've earned it. I think you've, uh, it sounds like you've had a busy enough year that you can probably use some downtime. I, I very much appreciate that sentiment and I do that. <laughs> um, so just uh, last up here, um, I wonder if you could, uh, if you think there's a, a best way to encourage um, not only developers, but gamers to appreciate and really push for good music um, in their games. Um, obviously we've come a long way, but there still tends to be an element of condescension when discussing game audio. You know, I don't, I don't see that from everyone. I see that from some people. Um, I think the developers already get it. I think they know they all want good music in their game. They all want something that's going to drive, drive the gameplay and drive the storyline. So I've never worked for a developer, you know, in recent, any recent memory that was like, yeah, we don't really care about your music, Jack. You know, <laughs> it's like, what do you got? And, you know, they want, they want great, you know, music that's, that's really going to help, help them shape, you know, their game design, their, their vision for what the game is. So uh, I think in the industry, there's plenty of buy-in for that. I don't, I don't feel anything uh, other than that. So that's, that's why I love working in games. People want great music. Um, I've never, again, I've never, and I've never, you know, had anything but appreciation from, from, from the fans of those games about, the music I've done. So that's you know, good to hear. I mean, that, that, that's the way it should be. So that's, I think so. Yeah. I, I think we're in good shape. Uh, you know, I, I always, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of just dealing with the uh, situation you've got. <laughs> yeah. kind of just, I don't know, bitching about the way, way it's, the, what it's not. And, and I, and I quite am happy with, um, with the way the industry works and, and, and how it, uh, you know, how it treats itself as it were, you know, I and mean, it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but you know, it's a pretty damn good industry and I like the people in it. I like the people I work with and I hope to keep continue doing it for as long as I can. Well, Jack, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me. I hope you uh, come back in the future to talk about more of your work as you have cool projects going on. You'll have <laughs> and in the meantime, I wish you the very, very best of luck with the, with the next things on your plate. Thanks, Marius. To all you fine listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed this latest interview. Follow us on Twitter at TrackSounds for more updates. Um, you can follow Jack Wall at Jack Wall Music and myself at Mathazar if, you, uh, if you'd like. So until next time, keep listening to your music and remember to stay tuned. Thank you.